You're listening to the Exegete Podcast by Gary Livengood. This is Lesson 11 in our series on Habakkuk. Hello and welcome back to our study in the book of Habakkuk. We'll look in this session at the third woe and the fourth woe that the Lord God speaks against the nation of Babylon. You might recall that uh, God has said, told Habakkuk in chapter one of this book, that he would use the nation of Babylon, even though they were evil and violent and they were pagan idolaters, but he was going to use Babylon to bring judgment against his own people, the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, But then God says in chapter two, don't worry, Habakkuk, I'm also going to bring judgment against Babylon. He had said in chapter one, verse 11, um, they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God, small g. So we know that and have seen that Babylon was a wicked people, greedy, covetous, uh, a lot of wild, uh, probably debaucherous behavior. But one of the things, maybe the key thing that we see throughout Habakkuk, the first two chapters anyway, about the Babylonians is the violence of this people. And we'll see much more of that in this session tonight. So let's read Habakkuk 2, verses 12 to 14. This is woe number three. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Don't you just wait with great hope and anticipation for that verse 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We don't really see that yet. And the first couple of verses there talk about uh, more about the evil of the Babylonians. Again, the theme of violence and bloodshed. Um, Walter Kaiser, great Old Testament scholar, talks about the atrocities of the uh, Babylonians, that's a word we often maybe think of, of what happened in the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. He also uses the term, the ruthlessness of Babylon. Uh, and they did this in order, at least in part, to build their own beautiful city. This is hardly what we would call a defensible war, right? Uh, this was strictly about ego and pride and all that sort of thing, the atrocities and the ruthlessness that they Uh, perpetrated on other nations and peoples. Well, God promises judgment for uh, this practice of establishing a city, a government, a home that is established through unjust violence. Jesus himself says in Matthew 26, 52, those who live by the sword shall die by the sword. And I mentioned before, one of the expressions that we hear today in our culture is what goes around comes around. And that is certainly reflected in, in the scripture, especially in Galatians 6, where it talks about you, you reap what you sow. And that is very, very much what a lot of this lesson in chapter 2 of Habakkuk is about, reaping what you sow. Those who live by the sword, which the Babylonians certainly did, will die by the sword. Verse 13, God says to these people, your work is in vain. And it's going to end in fire and ashes. Now, how would you like to spend countless hours, hundreds, thousands of hours working for something and uh, then find out it's going to end up in fire and ashes? Well, toil for ashes, 
and uh, you grow weary for nothing of value. The problem with the Babylonians here is they're putting their effort into what doesn't matter. In fact, they're really putting their efforts into that which is evil and sinful, uh, not into that which is of any value. And, and friends, one of the big, big questions that we need to ask ourselves, and I encourage you as you listen to this to ask yourself these questions. Are you, as a as a believer, I trust a believer in Christ, are you putting your efforts into what matters? Are you sowing seeds of righteousness? Are you planting for the kingdom? Is, is Matthew 6.33 true in your life? That is, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Remember, we will be uh, evaluated by Jesus Christ someday as to how faithful we were to him, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Uh, we're going to be evaluated. We're going to stand at the beam of judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, for an evaluation. So there's a really simple answer to these questions as to how you evaluate yourself about your efforts and to what matters and, and so forth. The simple answer to these questions as to how you evaluate is this. How do you spend your time, your talents, and your treasures? If you honestly uh, and maybe even ruthlessly evaluate yourself. What do you do with your time, your talents, and your treasures? That will tell you if you're putting your efforts into what matters. Uh, our, our pastor uh, recently said that we, we make time for what matters. And that is so true. So if the kingdom of God matters to you, I trust that you are putting your efforts, spending your time, your talent, and your treasures for the kingdom of God. And let me just say this as a bit of an aside. Um, my, uh, my son and his wife have a, a, a young a little girl, less than a year old. And I recognize that children take an immense amount of time. Uh, and you may say, man, there's just there's certain things I can't do anything anymore, especially if you're a young mom. I used to do this or that in the church, and I just don't have time anymore. I get that. And let me give you a word of encouragement. If you're putting your time into your children to make disciples of Jesus Christ, you are investing properly. I, I know I remember a, a young mother who had, I think, four children. There was a couple of twins um, in four years, I think. And she just said, I don't have time for anything hardly anymore related to the church. Well, if you're raising those children up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, you are putting your time, talent, and treasures where it belongs. So blessings on you um, young moms who do that. And that's what God is pleasing to God. So how do you spend your time, your treasure, your talents? Are you investing in the kingdom of God? incredibly important. And I'll say yet again, you are going to be evaluated by Jesus himself. So make sure we're investing properly. Um, for those who are not doing that, as the Lord comments in verse 13 here, the Lord of hosts is against you. And he says that he will bring these things to pass. That is, he will bring ashes of your work and your vain efforts. He will bring it up, bring it to pass. And uh, it's a frightening thing to think that the Lord of hosts is against a person or a nation. Remember in chapter 1, verse 11, regarding uh, Babylon, the Lord says, they will be held guilty. And by the way, when we think about the Lord of hosts, um, that's his, uh, his name in Hebrew that used there is Yahweh. That was the personal name of God that he had told Moses. And the Lord of hosts means he is the Lord of 
all of heaven's armies. Now, that is an impressive thing, especially when you think back to Isaiah 37. If you remember that story, one single angel um, brought, brought death to 185,000 people in the Assyrian army. One angel defeated 185,000 Assyrians. So the Lord of hosts, he's not only the Lord God of heaven, but he has all the angels at his side. And if one angel can do that, uh, what would a host of angels be able to do? You don't want the Lord of hosts against you. Isaiah 13, uh, 17, 19 says this um, about the fall of Babylon. Uh, and remember, we said this came about 70 years after Habakkuk's prophecy. Isaiah 13, beginning in verse 17. Behold, I am going to stir up the Medes, then we know that is the Medo-Persians, against them, who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold. And their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity children. And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And that is incredibly um, accurate. That's not just some sort of poetic thing. Remember, God says uh, Babylon, the city, is going to be remembered no more and come to the point where it will never be uh, inhabited again. And that's true, and I believe we looked at that last time. But also, that's the same thing that happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. It was wiped off the map, and for centuries upon centuries, people have been looking for where were Sodom and Gomorrah at. So it's a very similar judgment that God brought on Babylon, as he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, also interestingly, interesting there, Peter, um, Medo-Persia didn't generally treat the conquered nations like they treated Babylon. Uh, I'm not saying that they were some great godly holy people by any means, but they typically didn't destroy everybody, women, children, and uh, as well as the men, of course. Um, but God's hand of justice and retribution and judgment was on Babylon. He says, I am against you, Babylon. And, and by the way, uh, let's don't forget that Babylon had great witnesses of the living God and great testimony of the law of God. God had sent his people there uh, during that 70-year captivity and they didn't hide, at least the ones we know of from the book of Han Daniel, they did not hide their testimony. Remember, um, in, uh, in Daniel chapter 1, I want to read verses 3 to 6. Here's what the word of God says, Daniel 1. Then the Lord ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice, food, and from the wine which he drank, and, he pointed, that, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who, of course, we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these, these men, they never backed down from the Babylonian religions. Uh, they stood strong for the Lord, and as you read through Daniel, you see a number of occasions 
where uh, these young men, all four of them, uh, gave great, great, powerful testimony to uh, the God of Israel. And in the end, of course, uh, it looks like, and I may read some of that here in a moment, that Nebuchadnezzar might have been converted to being a God-fearing man. But they had a strong testimony in the nation of Babylon. They were well known, and there's no excuse, really, for the Babylonians saying, well, we didn't know about this living God. Yes, they did. Um, in fact, uh, it related to this in Daniel 3.30, uh, the scripture says, God caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to, to prosper in the province of Babylon. We know, of course, they went into the fiery furnace and came out alive, and everybody was stunned by that. And they gave their testimony about the living God had protected them. Uh, we know in, in um, also in uh, Daniel 3, verses 28 and 29, Nebuchadnezzar, as a result of that particular event, says this. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as to not serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. So Babylonians are aware of the God of Israel and that this, this God is an, a special God, an amazing God. Um, a God who is able to protect his servants and his people under the most uh, difficult of situations. We know that um, in, De in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, the, um, the uh, Magi come and they, they come to see uh, the newborn king. Um, they were very possibly, and a lot of scholars believe the Magi were Chaldeans. Uh, descendants of the of the Babylonians from centuries early, earlier. How did they know? How did they know about this uh, king to be born? Well, they uh, they may have known by means of the uh, people that lived in Babylon, Daniel and, and his friends, and many many other um, faithful Jews who who uh, brought the word of God to that nation. We also know that uh, Daniel chapter 9, well, Daniel, of course, he received this vision from God while he was in Babylon. And so there may have been uh, Babylonian magi, uh, magicians, religious leaders there, who, who studied and knew about Daniel's prophecy. And Daniel was held in incredibly high esteem, and they seemed like they believed his word. Um, I think that possibly uh, it was because of Daniel's prophecies that they were aware of the coming king of the Jews. And if you know that story, remember, they came to worship him. They wanted to find this, uh, this um, king that was be, to be born king of the Jews. I do believe that Nebuchadnezzar was converted. There's a point to all this, which I'll come to in a minute. Uh, if, as we read in Daniel chapter 4, listen to this, the first three verses. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth. May your peace abound. It seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God, notice he's calling 
Jehovah now, the Most High God, the things he has done for me. How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. That's a pretty strong word of praise and acknowledgement of the living God. And, and later, in that very same chapter, this is an incredible thing. I, I may have referred to this earlier as we studied Habakkuk, but I want to read this passage in Daniel 4, beginning in verse 34. Because here we see, I believe, a pagan king, an evil, violent pagan king, who now has been humbled, has seen the mighty work of God uh, through the, the Jewish young men that had been taken to Babylon. And now he recognizes there's really only one true and living God. I've often said that uh, some of these phrases that Babylon, that uh, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar wrote, we could put them to music and sing them in our Sunday morning services. They're so outstanding. So here's what he says. Again, Daniel 4.34. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised, and I honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. This sounds like, sounds like the Psalms, doesn't it, friends? Or, or reading from Isaiah. Uh, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as, counted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Notice that they didn't restore him as king until he acknowledged the living God with this, these great statements of praise and honor. Verse 37. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true, and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. That is a remarkable statement. That is a remarkable series of statements about our great God. Here's the point that I want to make related to that. These young men, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, and maybe others we don't know about, they went to a foreign nation which was absolutely corrupt, pagan, did not acknowledge the living God, God did not live by his laws, um, did not care about his laws. And in the midst of the most darkened kind of pagan activities, they lived for God. And they made a difference. And ultimately, this corrupt pagan king, I think, got saved. And uh, many others. And then uh, probably five or six hundred years later, the Magi come quite possibly from uh, the area where Babylon had been. And they're seeking out Messiah, the king, to worship him. Listen, you don't know how much of a difference you can make by standing for Christ, even as our society seems to get more and more corrupt. Really, there's no excuse not to represent Christ. Uh, we should never say, well, it's too late, or it's too evil, or I can't make a difference. These four young men, at least, made a huge, huge difference. By the way, that's recorded in the Word of God, the 
uh, forever eternal word of God. And we can do the same thing. Don't get overwhelmed. Don't get vanquished by evil, even though it may be tough. As we stand for Christ in the midst of darkness, our light gets even brighter. As the darkness gets darker, the light gets brighter. So as these four lads did, or young men did, I encourage you to do too. Stand for truth in the midst of falsehood. Stand for righteousness in the midst of wickedness. Stand for Jesus in a culture that seems bent on rejecting God and serving the enemy. And listen, you will make a difference. We see in Daniel chapter 5, the grandson of, of, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, uh, in, when they were having this terrible, um, wicked party for a thousand people, and we can only imagine what kind of drunkenness and shameful things were going on, and I've referred to this earlier uh, in the series. Uh, Daniel says in Daniel 5, 22 and 23, he says to Belshazzar, you knew about your father's salvation. You knew what happened to him, but you did not humble your heart. You exalted yourself against God. So, this woe, this woe number three says, all of Babylon's greatness will be reduced to ashes and will turn out to have been for nothing because they built the wrong way. They did not acknowledge the living God. Verse 14, back in Habakkuk 2, God compares the future kingdom of God on earth with fire, ashes, weariness, temporalness of Babylon, and really uh, of all earthly kingdoms. I love this statement in verse 14. For the earth will be filled with knowledge, uh, and with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So it's going to be everywhere. And related to that, I want to make some points about this. Um, I do want us to understand that although God says here, the earth will be filled with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, note that's a future tense. It will be full. Now, it's God, again, he's comparing the greatness of his, king, is, of his kingdom, and especially, I think, his future kingdom, with all the wickedness and idolatry and violence of, of Babylonian and the, really all earthly kingdoms. But that hasn't happened yet in that the earth is filled with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord. It's not happened yet. I want to look at uh, some passages related to this because there's an important, it's important for us to understand, uh, in, in one sense, uh, how, how great it's going to be when the Lord is reigning on earth from Jerusalem. And we'll look at some verses that refer to the millennial, millennium. I am a millennialist. Uh, but there's another aspect of this because you can get caught up in what I think is wrong doctrine. Um, Post-millennialism and preterism, uh, those aren't the same. Uh, but they both, I think, uh, miss these points. The earth will be filled with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord, but it's not yet. Um, and why do we say this? Well, uh, it's not just for Babylon, the time of Babylon and Habakkuk. Note that Jesus himself calls Satan the ruler of this world in John 12, 31. He doesn't say Satan was the ruler of this world, but now I have conquered him. He says Satan is the ruler of this world. Uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Paul himself calls Satan the god of this world. He doesn't say Satan was the god of this world. He's currently the god of this world. And in Ephesians 2, 2. Similarly, he is the prince of the power of the air. And by the way, both of these 
statements by Paul come after the resurrection of Christ. Again, my point is the earth will be filled with the knowledge and glory of the Lord, but it's not yet, at least not how it will be. Also, we see in uh, Matthew 24, 14, of course, this is the great Olivet Discourse in which Jesus talks about the end times. His disciples ask him, hey, what's it going to be like? Tell us about the end of the age. And so he goes into a long sort of chronological description of the end times. And in Matthew 24, 14, he says, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Well, please note, that has not happened yet. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, but it hasn't happened yet. Uh, we know that the gospel has not been preached through the whole world, so the end of this age can't have come yet. Those are the words of Jesus. Also, we know that in, from Ephesians 6.10 and following, spiritual warfare still is going on. If some of these doctrines are true, uh, we shouldn't be uh, fighting still spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. Uh, many preterists believe that the Lord has already returned. Well, I would say if the Lord has already returned the second time, we shouldn't still be fighting uh, spiritual battles. And yet Paul goes to great lengths there to describe spiritual warfare and say it's still going on. We still need to be engaged in this battle. And, and then thirdly, uh, from Revelation chapter 2, verse 27, um, John says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, And he, that is Jesus, shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. Uh, guess what? That has not happened yet. If you're like me and you long for the return of Christ, you might be saying, please, Lord Jesus, come quickly and rule with a rod of iron. But that has not happened yet. So the earth has not yet been filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's still future. And there's four or five passages that help us understand that. Jesus has not returned, uh, and the world is not getting better, as post-millennialists say, uh, it's getting worse, it's getting darker, and it will not change uh, for the better until the Lord Jesus returns to set up his rule, his rod of iron. Um, so at some future time, Habakkuk 2.14 happens, and uh, Jesus returns. The, the flow goes like this. I, mess, I mentioned the abomination of desolation, or I am mentioning it, rather, in Matthew 24.15. That's when the... Uh, the Antichrist desecrates the temple. <clears throat> and then 42 months later, three and a half years later, we, they, we go through there. Someone goes through the great tribulation. That leads up to the second coming of Christ. And when Christ returns, he sends up his millennial kingdom. And I'm a millennialist. And I'm going to read three millennial passages momentarily. Uh, and that millennium is the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. At the end of that thousand-year reign is the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. Jesus' second coming at the end of the great tribulation. And the great tribulation is not the seven years. It's the three and a half years from the abomination of desolation to his, to his return. Um, he returns at the end of the, second, of the great tribulation, and then the millennium begins. And that's, again, 
the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on earth. Um, and interestingly, side point, I read that uh, verse in Revelation 2.27, he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. Um, interestingly, and I agree with this point of view, that's one of the verses that uh, many people believe, believe says that uh, there will be non-believers on earth during the millennium. Otherwise, let's face it, if we're all uh, in our glorified bodies worshiping Jesus, there's no reason for him to rule with a rod of iron. If there are non-believers on the earth, as I believe there will be, that's a different story. And I know that many people have posed the question, well, how can that be? How can there be non-believers and glorified believers and Jesus ruling in, in Jerusalem? How can that be? I don't know. I don't know how that can be. But I think the scripture very clearly um, teaches that. So, once again, uh, the earth will be filled, filled with the knowledge and glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, I want to mention three verses. I'm going to read some passages here that describe the what I understand to be the millennial reign of Christ on earth. That thousand-year reign of Jesus as he reigns from Jerusalem, brings peace to the earth, rules with a rod of iron, and so forth. Here's a passage from Isaiah chapter 11. I read the first 10 verses. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse, by the way, was the father of David. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And we understand this to be prophecy about Messiah. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what he sees, nor make a decision by what he hears. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. Now get this, friends. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Now that sounds like Revelation 19, when Jesus returns. In fact, very, very strikingly similar in the description. Verse 5, also righteousness will be, about, will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Now here's the clear, I think, description of the circumstances in the millennium, beginning in verse 6. The wolf will lie down with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Here's the next phrase. Sound familiar? For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Pretty much word for word what Habakkuk says in chapter 2, verse 14. That hasn't happened yet. And then in that day, verse 10, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, the root of Jesse is Jesus, who will stand as a signal for his peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. So you can see there, there's going to be a seminal change in the world, um, in the animal kingdom, as well as among humans. Um, the danger, the results of the fall, are to some degree, are going to be reversed. I don't think the entire curse is reversed yet. I don't think that happens till after the millennium ends and the great white throne judgment ends. But it's we're, we're taking a huge, huge step 
to the reversal of the curse. Here's another uh, passage about the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand years. This is from Micah chapter 4. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. Note that phrase, in the last days. Always a reference to the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, and uh, some references here to Zechariah 14 as well. Um, the mountain uh, will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord into the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples, and render nation, render decisions for mighty distant nations. And this sounds like he's ruling over the whole world. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. And never again will they train for war. Well, that certainly hasn't happened yet. And then verse 4. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So there's peace, safety, security all over the world, and that can only happen under one scenario, and that's Jesus reigning over the earth. I want to read one more passage in this. I, I guess I was wrong. We're not going to get to woe number four. This is like teaching my class on Sunday mornings. I never get as far as I think I'm going to. But I want to close this session tonight with another um, passage. I'm going to read all of Psalm 72 that I think is very, very much um, related to the statement in Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Psalm 72, and this is about the reign of the righteous king. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people. Save the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Let them fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he come down like rain upon mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish in abundance of peace till the moon is no more. May he also rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. And let all kings bow down before him. Let all the nations serve him. Can't wait for that, brother and sister. Let all the nations of the earth serve Jesus. Verse 12. For he will deliver the needy when he cries for help, and the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and the needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. So may he live, and may the gold of Sheba be given to him. And let them pray for him continually. Let them bless him all the day long. May there be abundance of grain in the earth on top of the mountains. 
Its fruit will wave like the cedars of Lebanon, and may those from the city flourish like vegetation of the earth. May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines, and let men bless themselves by him. Let all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And get this, friends, may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. So that's what it's going to be like, I believe, in the millennial period. And I think when the Lord says, once again, for the, whole, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It hasn't happened yet, but it will. Write it down. The knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. I hope, like me, your heart just bursts in excitement and anticipation of that. Until then, be faithful to him. Remember what we said about, about investing in the right things. Where are you putting your time, your talent, and your treasures? Invest in the things of God, and uh, you'll never go wrong if you do that. Thank you for listening. Uh, we'll get to the next woe, woe number four, in the next session. Again, thanks for listening, and God bless you.